Amen. Well, let's turn in our Bibles now to Revelation chapter 2. We are just in the early stages of our study through the book of Revelation. Revelation, the proper title of the book, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so everything in this book is designed to show us more about Jesus, to complete the picture, really, of who he is. And so it's exciting to go through this study. Revelation's an interesting and exciting book, um, and especially because it shows us about Jesus. It shows us who he is. It demonstrates his character to us. And here in the second and third chapter are these seven letters to churches that are really letters to all churches, but they were addressed to seven churches that were in Turkey, uh, Asia Minor in those days. But these are letters that Jesus penned and tailored for these churches because of different issues that were going on within the churches. But we see elements that they dealt with in churches of all generations, including for us today. So it's a, I love going through these, so we're taking one letter each week as we go through it, and then we will just continue through the book of Revelation, uh, seeing more of Jesus as he takes us all the way to our glorious future that we spent with him. And it'll be awesome when we get all the way through, because then we will have completed the entire Bible um, since I, you know, for eight and a half, nine years, whatever it'll take. So here this morning, we have come to verse 12 and the letter to the church in Pergamos. Pergamos was a, was a city that was just known for its idolatry. It was, a, it was, an, it was an idol capital in a lot of ways. Um, many pagan temples were there. And one of the most notable things that existed there in Pergamos was a temple that was dedicated to the, to the god Zeus. And the very center of Zeus worship was in that temple, a huge throne that was said to be the throne that Zeus would sit upon. And, and uh, Jesus references that place and calls it the, the seat of Satan at this point. But this was a church that he has things to say about them that are pretty impressive. But he also has some deep concerns about some things that are going on there. And, and I think when we see this, it gives us some insights into Jesus and how he does things and what he values. So let's begin reading in verse 12. To the angel or the messenger, the leader of the church in Pergamos, write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now in each of these letters, Jesus self-identifies by using one of the phrases in chapter 1 that describes who he is. And in this case, he references the fact that out of his mouth was coming the sharp two-edged sword. Probably talking about the fact that when he speaks, it cuts through all the baloney and it gets right to the heart of the matter. He makes a clear division as to what it is that he's communicating. There's nothing you know, ambiguous about what he is going to say. Now, over in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, it talks about God's word as being sharper than a two-edged sword. And it says that it can get to the heart of the matter, to tell the difference between the thoughts and intents of the heart, and can actually divide between the soul and the spirit. See, for us, 
We don't always know what soul and what spirit. The soul is you, the immaterial part of you, your mind, your will, your emotions. The spirit is what God is doing in you. And you don't have to be a Christian very long before you find certain people who think that whatever they think is what God is saying. Usually these people are always telling you, you know, God told me this, God told me that. When you hear that a lot, you can pretty much chalk it up to the fact that here is a person who doesn't know the difference between their own imagination and the voice of God. But the sword of his word will allow you to see. Is this something that God is going to confirm or is this something that I dreamed up for myself? So what Jesus is saying here is, I am going to cut through with my voice a lot of what's going on here and I'm just going to pierce through to the heart of the matter and level with you about reality, about what's going on and who you are. And boy, do we need that. But he says... I know your works. That is, I see what you're doing. And, I, and I'm not criticizing what you're doing. You're doing good things. He goes on and says, I know where you dwell. You're living in Vegas. You know, you're living in a, in a gross, corrupt place. And, and certainly today, anywhere that you live in this world almost, you could go, wow, that's, a, that's an evil place. There's a lot of bad stuff going on around you. And Pergamos was that way, and he said, I get the environment that you're having to deal with. I see it. He says, it's where Satan's throne is. He's like, yep, they think that's cool, and what they're worshiping isn't Zeus. They're actually worshiping the enemy. They're worshiping Satan himself, and you guys have to live there. And he said, and you hold fast to my name. You're not going away from being followers of Jesus. You're not going... You know, no, I'm not a Christian. You speak up for me. You go ahead and, and have made a commitment to me. And it goes further than that because he says, you didn't deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So he goes, not only do you guys hang on to the name, you, you continue to profess faith in, in me, but hey, even in a case of Antipas, who was a guy apparently who was a member of the church in Pergamos, who was persecuted and actually killed for his faith, he goes, hey, you even have a guy who was willing to die for my name and for the faith. He was a witness of me. So he goes, yeah, you guys are the real deal. You guys actually have a commitment and it's been demonstrated in very graphic ways as you've been willing to, to stand up for truth. So, so far, so good. Living that way in a place where Satan dwells. But, verse 14, I have a few things against you. There's a problem. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I also hate. Um, we talked about the Nicolaitans a couple weeks ago. But this, the center of their problem, the center of the issue that he had with this church is that there were people there who were following the teachings, the values, the standards of Balaam. Now, Balaam is an interesting, fascinating character, really, in the Old Testament. 
And uh, we're not going to turn over there and read the whole story of Balaam because it takes several chapters in the book of Numbers. But if you want to read about his life and his issues, you can read like Numbers 22 through 25 and get a pretty good picture of, of what Balaam was about. But in order to figure out what he's talking about here, we need to get into the head of Balaam and go, okay, what was really driving this guy? So I'll give you a brief rundown on who Balaam was in order for us to understand what the doctrine of Balaam is that the church in Pergamos was leaning towards or adopting. Now, Balaam came out of nowhere, basically. In Numbers chapter 22, what was happening in Israel is that the children of Israel had left Egypt. God had delivered them. They had been wandering in the wilderness over towards Saudi Arabia, wandering all over the place. God gave them the law and so on. Now they're moving toward the Holy Land. They're moving toward the place that God had prepared for them. And they were beginning to get strong in a, in a sense, in terms of their military capacities, because they were starting to conquer some of the little tribes that were in that area that would be on the east side of the Jordan River. If you, if you recall your map of Israel, you have in the north the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River runs down south and ends up in the Dead Sea, where it all dumps into there. Now, on the west side of the Dead Sea is Jerusalem and the southern part of Israel. On the west side of the Jordan River is the area that they would call, they called Samaria ultimately. Um, it's a part of Israel. Today we call it the West Bank because it's on the west bank of the Jordan River. Now over on the east side, moving all the way up, there was the land of the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. There were the Moabites, the Midianites, going up further north, the Assyrians, and so on, which would be present-day Jordan, Saudi Arabia, moving up to Iraq and Iran, and all of that. So the children of Israel are over there on the other side of the Dead Sea, opposite the place where they would ultimately and eventually cross the sea. And here's what was happening. There was a Moabite king named Balak, and he got concerned. The Moabites are going... Look at all these Jews over here, and they're exhibiting some power and some dedication, and we're concerned that they're just going to take over our country. And so the Midianites and the Moabites kind of got together, and Balak was actually probably of Midianite descent, but had been made the Moabite king, and they said, we've got to get some kind of magic together to stop these guys, or we're dead. And so they sent for this prophet named Balaam. And Balaam came from an area way up uh, in Mesopotamia, which would be way north where Iraq is today. It was the area where civilization had first come, you know, as the Garden of Eden was in the area of Iraq. And, and so he was from that area. And for some reason, he was a guy who believed in God and actually heard from God and was a prophet of God, and yet he was kind of a shyster too. It was a guy who was kind of in it for the money, but ultimately the money wasn't what motivated him the greatest, as I'll point out in a moment. But somehow, though he wasn't Jewish, from that area of the country, perhaps through relatives of Abraham when he went up north or something, he had heard enough about Jehovah God that he had connected to him. But he was also a magician and a psychic. 
Now that seems weird to us because we sometimes think that God only uses people who are really pure and that he'll never speak through somebody unless they're just really right on Christians. Um, But God spoke through Balaam, as you see over there in Numbers, for several chapters and actually spoke to him. And Balaam had a respect for God and he would refuse to prophesy anything that he didn't hear from God. But at the same time, he did incantations and magic and things like that too. Kind of weird, but it says the Holy Spirit would come on him and he would speak, but he was also a pagan to a degree. So weird, but you know, God, God sometimes chooses to use people who aren't necessarily 100% pure and he'll use them for his purposes. So anyway, they called Balaam and they, they went to him and brought him money and said, look, we will pay you. Balak wants you to come down and pronounce a curse on these people. So Balaam is interested right away because of the offer of money. But he said, look, let me go to bed tonight and I'll see, see if God gives me a dream. That's usually how God would talk to him. So he goes to bed and God goes, hey, who are these guys out here? And he goes, oh, they're guys that want me to come down and curse some people that are down there in the south. And, and God goes, don't do it. Those are my people. Don't go with them. And so he goes, okay. So he gets up in the morning and he goes, you know, God talked to me. And he goes, nope, can't do it. So they go back down to Balak and they go, guy's not going to do it. We offered him the money, told him he could do it. He won't play along. So Balak sends some more important people, probably with some more money. And he makes this offer and he says, come down here, just come down here and we'll talk about this. So that night, God tells Balaam, what are you doing? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking of going down there. And he goes, he goes well, no, I mean, I just, they're asking. I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and he go, God says, okay, well, if in the morning they come and talk to you, then you go with them. But if they don't, don't. And only say what I say. So in the morning, he doesn't wait to see if they come. He's just like, okay, I'm going. Gets on his donkey, starts heading south in order to see Balak. It was at that time that the story that you're familiar with probably happened. His donkey stops in the middle of the road because the donkey sees the angel of the Lord, probably Jesus himself in his pre-incarnate state. And, and he's standing there and the donkey stops. And he's like, what is wrong with you? He starts wailing on his donkey. And the donkey ends up coming to a place in the road where there's two walls and he smashes Balaam against a wall and hurts his leg. Balaam's getting madder. He's whacking the donkey. And then finally the donkey just lays down. And he's beating the donkey. And in the meantime, the donkey sees the angel of the Lord. He doesn't. Sometimes animals see things we don't see. And then the donkey starts talking to him. And he goes, why are you beating me? And Balaam's so mad, he doesn't even occur to him, this is kind of weird that a donkey is talking. And he goes, well, because you hurt my leg and you're not doing what I told you to do, I ought to, be, I ought to kill you. If I had a sword here, I'd kill you right now. And the donkey goes, speaking of swords, look ahead. And all of a sudden his eyes were open and he sees the angel of the Lord standing there with a sword going, you ought to thank that donkey. If he had kept moving, I would have killed you. So he's like, oh, so I guess you don't want me going down to see Balak and Angel of the Lord just goes, fine, go. If you don't get this, go. But you only say what I'm going to tell you to say. 
So he goes on down there, and Balak says, what took you so long? And he said really what I think was a key thing, and Balak said it several times, I wanted to honor you. And that's why I wanted you to come down here. Here's a chance for you to be famous. Here's a chance for you to get a lot of attention. Here's a chance for you to receive accolades. What took you so long? And so he goes, what I, honor you, what I offer you is more than money. I'm offering you honor. And so he goes, okay, what do you got? He says, okay, come over here. Look at these people that are camped down here in the land of Moab. I want you to curse them. He goes, well, I can only do what God tells me to do. But here's what we do. Let's build seven altars and let's sacrifice some animals on them. And I'll do some other magic words and incantations. And let's see what God tells me. So they go through all this ritual and God tells them, those people are blessed. Those people are my people. Don't say anything bad about them because they're mine. So he comes back to Balak and he goes, well, bad news. God apparently likes these people. And I don't know what to tell you. And Balak's like, what? What, are you, what am I paying you for? What am I making a big deal about? I'm offering you so much. And that's what you have to say. He goes, well, I can only say it's not going to do you any good if I lie and say, God, you know, what good is a, is a curse that's fake? And so Balak goes, okay, well, let's maybe from a different angle. He takes him over to another place where you can only see part of the children of Israel. And he's like, try it again. So they build seven more altars, do these sacrifices, do the magic. And again, God blesses them and, and just says, hey, Israel's great. Now, Balak's getting really frustrated. Balaam's starting to think, I can pretty much forget about being honored by this guy. But he continues to promise honor, goes, try it once more. Takes him to another place from another angle. They build the altars. This time it says Balaam, Balaam's pretty much given up on it, so he does no magic. He just goes through the motions. And again, God says to bless Israel. And at this point, Balak says something really important. He goes, you've blown it, buddy, because I was offering you honor, and what you do is curse me and, and bless my enemies. And, and then Balak said something to Balaam. He goes, God is the one who has kept you from honor. I wanted to honor you, and God's ripping you off. God is robbing you of the accolades that you deserve. And then Balaam goes, oh, by the way, I have one more thing from God. And he gives this amazing prophecy concerning the star who would one day come that would deliver Israel completely, that would take possession of all the land of the whole earth. He gives this messianic prophecy um, just as a, as a freebie. And Balak just goes, dude, if you don't get out of here, I'm going to kill you. I've had enough of you. But Interestingly, and as you read the story in Numbers, in the very next chapter, Israel has a huge defeat. Because what happens is, it says that the Moabite women went down, and apparently Moabite women are pretty hot. Ruth was one of those. And they're like, hey guys. And the, and the Israeli men are just, whoa. And they got into idolatry and everything else because of cute chicks. And it's like, and then they end up being judged for it. Now, what Numbers doesn't say there, but later on in Numbers chapter 31, 
when Balaam, God says, kill Balaam, it says, Balaam counseled Balak and corrupted the children of Israel through sexual immorality and idolatry. And so here's what ultimately happened with Balaam, and it was his demise. He's telling the truth, he's saying the truth, he's making these great prophecies, but then he's like, there's got to be a win-win here. There's got to be a way that I can get honor and I can still speak with integrity and say what God wants to say and, and, and not end up you know, having this all be a waste. And so what he apparently does, and there are several references in Scripture to it, as he's leaving, he goes, come here, Balak, let me give you a tip. You're sitting there wanting God to put a curse on these people. He ain't going to do it. He somehow likes these people. But God or no God, if I was you, what I would do is one thing that Moabites have going for them is hot chicks. So send them down there to the Israeli men, and for crying out loud, those guys are human. You know, they're, it, it, you, you'll be able to win them over through that. Just a piece of advice. Try it. And he did it, and it worked, and Israel was devastated as a result of them compromising their flesh, and Balaam felt like, I didn't do anything. What, I just made a suggestion, didn't have to do it? I didn't say, thus saith the Lord, use your women to corrupt their men. No, it was just like, he was just going, as a side comment, if I were you, and I'm not, I'm not a heathen, I'm godly, but if I were you, here's what I'd probably do. It just makes good sense. And no doubt he felt like, I think I have a win-win. I think I can do something that will cause Balak to be happy with me, and I haven't technically violated the commandment of God. I haven't, there's nothing that God has told me that I can't just give him a piece of advice one guy to another. And so... That was it for Balaam. Now, throughout the Old Testament in various places and in the New Testament, Jude and Peter and other places, he is referred to as a guy who had this horrible doctrine, this horrible teaching, this horrible set of values that here, as we see in the church in Pergamos, it's still in existence. They're thinking like this. So what is the doctrine of Balaam. What is the theology of Balaam? What is it to be like Balaam? It's simply this. It's to go, I am going to be faithful to God's word, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that I can't bend things a little, be kind of clever, maybe find a way to, to win and still not compromise God. And so it's a, it's a pragmatism that would say there's got to be a way that we can follow God and still find a way for things to work out well for me. For me to get what I want and for God to be cool with whatever it is that he wants. And that is the temptation always for, for believers. It's how can we walk the fence? How can we make some compromises? How can we cut some corners there has to be a way for God to win and for me to win too. Because I just don't like this deal where I am dishonored and God's word is upheld and everybody's mad at me and blaming me for it. Maybe I can get creative. 
and make this work out well for everyone. It's getting too clever for your own good. And ultimately, it's taking ministry and getting confused about what ministry is really all about. Because, see, ministry is almost never involving a person getting great honor. More often than not, ministry involves a person spending themselves, expending themselves, sacrificing themselves in order for God to somehow accomplish what he wants to do and for him to get his glory. But I am human and therefore I appreciate being honored. I appreciate getting a piece of the action. I I want to be glorified. But the problem is, if I have my eyes on two things, I lose my focus. If I want to be faithful to God, and at the same time, I want to think that I, I want to make sure that I cash in and that I look good, no man can serve two masters. You will end up trading away one in exchange for the other. And if I have that choice, which way am I going to go? I'm going to go with what makes me look good. And always... And scripturally, we see tons of examples of this, and we can look in the mirror and see how this works in our lives often. We go, yeah, I want God, but I also want to look good. I want to serve Him, but the truth is I also care about what people think of me. And whenever our eyes are on what people think of me, We put ourselves in a position where this danger can ensue. The the practice of Balaam, the way he did things, can take over our lives and the way that we lead. And, And all along we're thinking, I'm being faithful to God. I mean, God hasn't told me that I can't look good to people. God hasn't told me that there's something wrong with me running my own publicity campaign along with faithfully saying what God has said. But what God would always say is, no, in order to, you know, like John the Baptist said when Jesus came along, he must increase and I must decrease. That's how he gets his work done. And as soon as we as his servants decide that a part of our goal is that we would increase, that we could share the, the spotlight with Jesus. Our dream is always, it'd be so cool if I could become famous and then as I'm receiving my award, I could say, and I just want to thank Jesus. As if Jesus is so excited to see somebody win some meaningless trophy and go, oh yeah, Jesus He's our, well, our fans are our 12th man. Jesus is like our 13th, no, that's bad luck. Uh, Jesus is our 14th man. He's like there with us. And so we're going to give him a championship ring along with all of ours. And look, everybody wins, right? No, everybody doesn't win. Because people cannot see Jesus when we're in the way. And he doesn't share the spotlight with anyone Salvation will not come to anyone because they see us. And then they also notice that, yeah, we're wearing a Jesus shirt. You know, yeah, we're like, we believe in Jesus. Oh, really? 
Salvation comes when you see Jesus. The whole book of Revelation is about a revelation of Jesus. And yet the temptation in the body of Christ is always that we become confused between how He is seen and how we are seen. And that's really Balaam's deal. Why is that a big deal? Because eventually, eventually, if we don't get this straight, we will always compromise in some way. Because if we're trying to decide what we're going to say and how we're going to live and who we are and what integrity means to us based on, well, I need to protect my reputation and I'm going to take Jesus to the top with me. Eventually, you're going to be in a situation like Balaam where it's like, you could bend a little bit and you can get a lot of attention. Great things can happen. And boy, just think of how God could use you then. But when you bend and when you compromise and when you get pragmatic, the problem is you will compromise in an area of selfishness. We are not designed to be honored by men. The honor of men, the attention of men, the approval of men is something that can only deceive us. And that kind of pride, that kind of power that comes from the attention of men will always destroy us. Pride comes before a fall. Pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. So as we are hearing the applause, we should also be hearing the voice of God saying, don't take this seriously. Don't value this. Don't live for this. Because ultimately it will lead you down the wrong path. It will cause you to indulge in idolatry. It will cause you to indulge in immorality. Why is it that people who enjoy so much success in the world, whether they're Christians or not, so often end up destroying their own lives by self-indulgent, foolish behavior? Why is it that someone who's at the top of their game in a sport and they have this image that people are paying hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars to say, here is our example, here's our champion. What causes them to ultimately go and sacrifice their marriage and their reputation and, and half of their assets ultimately at least and then to lose endorsements and everything else to go have sex with some floozy? It's like, what are you thinking? Why, why does that make sense to you? What causes you to go, huh, let's see, a tattoo artist, Sandra Bullock. Uh, yeah. I mean, how do, what is going on in somebody's head? Well, it's simple. It's like, you know what? I'm bigger than life. I'm living my dreams. And I had this one little weird dream. I'm going to grab that too. And it doesn't just happen to celebrities. It happens to people in ministry. And you've seen this happen over the years where someone who's on top of the world preaching God's word, judging others and saying all the right things, all of a sudden the world comes crashing in on them because they've done something completely foolish and, and almost with a death wish. But that's what happens when we start to live for what feels good rather than committing ourselves to doing the right thing. Doing the right thing is always going to be the most rewarding, ultimately. But it's a question of, do you want to be honored by people, or do you want to be honored by God? 
And the temptation is, I think I can have my cake and eat it too. I think I can have it both ways. I believe that I can have a happy marriage and I can also get a little action on the side. I think, I can, I think as long as I, as I tithe from the money that I make, then I'm able to do with my 90% whatever I want. And how I get that money doesn't really matter. God should be happy because he gets his tip every week. And it's this idea of, I can have it all. I can live my dream, and God will come along for the ride. God doesn't want to come along for the ride. He knows what's best for us. But the only way we get there is by saying, you know what? I don't really care about the offer of honor. And I don't really care about pursuing all of the desires of my heart. What I care about is just listening to him, taking his advice, living life his way, maintaining an integrity and a purity that comes from just going, you know what? I only care what he thinks of me. I only want to believe what he says about me. And I don't want to allow myself to compromise and then think that I can do both. And, you know, it is, as someone has said, it is absolutely impossible to at one time impress people with how incredible you are and also to impress them with how great he is. You have to choose. What is it that you want to communicate? Balaam tried to have it both ways, and that was destructive. And here in Pergamos, they were doing the same thing. The Nicolaitans were people who followed a guy who started out well, but he found a way, he found a justification for sexual immorality to take place as a part of his Christian ritual. Now again, I'm not talking about somebody who slips and falls into a sin and repents and turns away from it. I'm talking about people who justify what they do, their materialism and their immorality, and act like, no, this is cool. I'm right with God. I'm right with people. It's a win-win. People love me and God blesses me. No. And, and that's what Jesus is impressing to them. Man, you guys believe the right things. You've done the right things. You've even made sacrifices. Why are you throwing it away by having a divided heart that worries about human honor, that worries about your own publicity, that's impressed with your own press clippings instead of sacrificially following your Lord the way he did? That will lead to true glory. But you promoting yourself will never do that. It will only lead to compromise. And that's what he's sharing with them. And then let's look quickly at what he, his remedy is. He says, you've done that, so, verse 16, repent. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I not only speak the truth, my sword has a bite to it. My words will cut to the chase. You will be held accountable at some point for the compromise that you have involved in ministry to me. I will not let you get away with it. And history is full of examples of people who tried, and it's a long history of people who ultimately will feel the sword, will be separated, will be exposed by the word of the Lord because of their duplicity, because of their hypocrisy. And he said, if you don't deal with this, I get it, I understand why you're doing it, but just change your mind. Metanoia, repent, just means start thinking differently. Stop doing it this way. If you don't, 
I'll show up and I'll clear it up for you. I'll deal with this for you. And then he just says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes or is victorious over this, over this tendency, this temptation, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Okay, over here you have the accolades of men. Over here you have the promise of honor. And using God to put yourself in a position of honor, that's an option. Over here you have going, no, I don't care what people think. I only answer to him, and I'm going to do it his way. Now he says, if you conquer that which will destroy you ultimately, then I'm going to come and I have hidden manna. Manna was not the most exciting food out there. Children of Israel got really sick of it. But it was incredibly nutritious. It was something that God fed them with in the wilderness for all those years. And they maintained a capacity that was really amazing in an area that didn't have a lot of food. So they appreciated it even though sometimes they were thinking, I miss those Egyptian burgers that we used to have. <laughs> what he's saying is, if you do this, I'm not going to hit you with a banquet necessarily. But what I'm going to do is I'm always going to take care of you. I'm always going to feed you and provide for you and strengthen you in ways that most people won't understand. It may not be a lot of public acclaim. In fact, it mostly won't be. People who can handle public acclaim are rare, rare exceptions. But he goes, I'm going to be slipping you stuff under the table that will keep you going. I'll provide for you in mysterious ways. I promise to do that. I will never, you will never go hungry because you are being true to me. But then he says, and there's also going to be this white rock. And on this rock is going to be a secret name that only you and I know. And it's my pet name for you. Put on a, on a stone of white. And you put that in your pocket and you will always know that no matter what anybody else thinks of you, you'll know what I think of you. You'll know that you are special to me. You will find that in times of difficulty, you can hang on to that rock, which is a reminder of my promises to you. You can hold that name, that description that I have given of you, that special place that you have in my heart, and that's going to be more than all of the accolades of people that will fade instantly because they love to put you on a pedestal and then knock you off of it, but you stick with me and you'll get me. And we will have a personal connection. We will have an intimacy that far surpasses anything that the accolades of men could ever accomplish in your lives. And he goes, that's what I've got. You know, yeah, to compare a rock with a name and a bit of manna to everything that the world has to offer, it doesn't sound like such a good trade on one level. But finding out what happens to people who pursue accolades, Balaam, in his case, ended up being killed for his clever little move, for his great advice to Balak. Um, the path of prominence, the path of honor, 
ultimately leads to a very bad place. But simply living your life to please God, doing what he gives you to do, walking in integrity and never selling out what you have your faith in in order to get something that you think you want, ultimately that leads to a rock. That leads to a a personal connection with the God who made you. And that and what he provides for you cannot compare to whatever it is that people can offer. Whatever it is that compromise and pragmatism will ultimately give you. And God takes care of us very well. He's not saying all you're going to have is manna and a rock. He's saying when everything else fades away, you've got me. To trade away me for other stuff, you're going to lose all that stuff and lose me. A great reminder to us, and I think today as in those days in Pergamos, we are surrounded by sin and temptation We are always given opportunities to find a way to weasel our way into finding a way to make life pay off well if we will only compromise what God is telling us to do. And that choice is the critical choice of our lives. Will we live in integrity or will we compromise in order to gain applause? And the Lord makes it clear which is the wise decision. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word, for giving us this powerful example of Balaam and then shining a mirror on us. And God, I pray that for each of us right now and this week as we reflect on this passage, that you would show each of us the Balaam that is in us. You would show us areas of our lives where we are selling out what matters most to try to please people, to try to get, make it work both ways. We're we're looking for a win-win and we're going to come up with a lose-lose if we don't get this. So God, please show us ourselves and in all of our ugliness and then forgive us and cleanse us and let us see ourselves clothed in your righteousness. We thank you for this message that Lord Jesus, you wrote to that church in Pergamos but that you've shared with us today. May we live our lives in light of this reality and this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.